So sad. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Rinita Malhotra-Hura. China's stocks sink the most since 2007 as state-induced calm is shattered. Asian futures signal declines after the China stock market rout. And Brent crude oil returns to a bear market. Well, after an 8.5% crash, confusion reigns in China. The severity of the drop is bad enough, but the question that everyone is asking, why, still remains unclear. Walking us through the markets this morning is J.P. Morgan's Tai Wei. Then Natixis's uh, Alicia Garcia-Herrero talks to us about the emerging markets Fragile 5. And finally, Friends Provident International's James Tan fills us in on insurance trends. Well, investors are nervously awaiting the start of the trading day following the biggest one-day slump in mainland stocks for more than eight years. Yesterday's panic selling was checked at least in part by the 10% loss limit, which saw the shares of 1,500 companies suspended. The Shanghai Composite Index fell 8.5% yesterday, while the Shenzhen ended uh, 7% lower and the Hang Seng Index shed 3%. Late last night, the state media said that the China Securities Finance Corporation would continue to buy stocks in a move intended to dispel rumors that the national margin trading service provider had backed off from stabilizing the market. Here's Andrew Sullivan of Haitong Securities. People are concerned there that, or were hoping that gov- the government may come in with some more easing measures, certainly with interest rates. But with the sign that uh, inflation is continuing to rise, largely through food prices there, and with PPI remaining weak, uh, the government's really got very little scope for doing that. And that's partly probably why they are looking at widening the yuan ban to allow the yuan itself to depreciate and maybe help some of the exports. The president at the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, said that the China market sell-off and economic slowdown was a nightmare scenario for Chinese leaders. What this shows, though, the stock markets have become now fairly broad markets. It's not just elites who are investing in them. A lot of Chinese people are investing in them. They are worried. This is going to contribute, I would argue, to greater political tightening. This is the, this is the nightmare scenario for the Chinese leadership. The economy slows, the markets fall, and then you start to have political and some popular pushback. That is what they are worried about. But is it going to kill the global economy? High-frequency economics uh, Carl Weinberg says, no, not really. The fundamentals, I mean, you have a huge demand for stocks because people don't have any place else to put their money. There's no alternative here for people to flee. So you really have kind of a crapshoot in this market, and uh, I don't think I can really link it to anything. And I also think that there's a very small percentage of people in China who are actually engaged in stocks, so I don't think this is going to kill the economy either. 
European equities fell to a two-week low and U.S. stocks fell overnight after the steep falls in mainland markets increased concerns that cooling growth in the world's number two economy could hurt China's trading partners. The Dow fell three quarters of a percent to 17,441. The broader-based S&P 500 was down just over half percent to 2,067, while the Nasdaq ended about one percent lower at 5,000. And 39. So what does all of this mean in terms of the global economy? Point 72 Asset Management's uh, Dean Maki, here he is. All what right, we're well, in the markets partly is uh, worries that that we may not have seen the end of the China slowdown yet. And the, it's, it's a kind of an obscure issue because of the, there's worries that the, the GDP data are not accurate. There's worries of, you know, what, what exactly is going on there. Um, so I, I think China will, will be the difference between whether the global economy picks up or not. All right. Well, sorry about that. A little bit of disturbance on the audio. It's live radio. What are you going to do? (laughs) Copper futures fell another 1.4% on Monday and Brent crude oil has relapsed into a bear market as rising Iraqi exports and a rebound in U.S. drilling have signaled that the global supply glut will grow. The European benchmark crude fell 2.1% to a four-month low of $53.47 a barrel. The grade has lost more than 20% from this year's highest close, meeting the common definition of a bear market. Iraq's oil exports rose uh, from the south, excuse me, rose to an all-time high this month. Here's Richard Mallinson of Energy Aspects in London talking with Bloomberg. You've got to look at the moment, and in the short term, the path of least resistance is downwards for prices. You know, we've got thin liquidity, and you've got quite a few factors weighing. I think the distillates market is definitely something to look at. Refineries around the world have been pumping really hard, uh, running really hard in order to generate more gasoline, because gasoline demand's been very good, but that's left us with a surplus of diesel. You know, these are refineries that have been built to um, supply or to maximise diesel yields, and the market's just not able to absorb that, and that's feeding back through into crude. We've also got another fall in the Chinese stock market, but the most important thing here is we just haven't yet seen that slowdown in non-OPEC supplies. And Friday's rig data just told us that once again, we're still not, although rig numbers have come off hugely from before the price fall, we're not yet confirming that for the market in terms of slowing down, slowing supply growth. All right, let's bring in our first guest of this morning, Tai Wei, who is the Chief Market Strategist for Asia at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Good morning, Tai. Good morning. Tai, uh, China is a market where unprecedented state intervention has made government money one of the biggest drivers, perhaps, of share prices. It seemed to be holding up for a bit, and then now this. So what happened? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, uh, the economic and corporate fundamentals of China have really not improved. So even you know, during the rally since we've seen at the end of last year, uh, it was very much a liquidity-driven rally rather than a fundamental-driven rally. And as a result, you know, when economies or corporate earnings are not getting better, uh, it is very vulnerable to market sentiment. And we're seeing exactly that right now, where government intervention has not really been successful in supporting market sentiment, and we're seeing another round of very aggressive sell-offs. 
So, you know, we've been saying on this show for a while that at some point, uh, you know, the, this fundamental difference between China's economy and its soaring stock markets over this last year or so, you know, at some point, um, you know, the two are going to have to catch up with each other. Is this it? Uh, I think so. I think I think we are uh, on the convergence of those two 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 uh, you know, markets versus the economy. Uh, I'm still somewhat hopeful that the economy should start to stabilize towards the end of this year, early next year. Uh, however, it does suggest that we may probably still see the broad market correct a little bit more. I think the importance here is that when you focus on China or investing in China, is to focus on some of the long-term themes, which we're still pretty constructive about, and then take out some of the noise, some of the froth. Uh, in the market that we see. Mm. Okay, so aside from bad economic data and, of course, all of this liquidity uh, that has been going into the markets, what about other factors? Irregularity in margin financing, anything else? Well, I think margin financing is it's a make or break for the Chinese market we've seen in the past 12 months. Uh, the rally was very much fueled by margin financing and some of the sharp corrections was prompted by uh, speculations or rumor that the authorities are clamping down on margin financing, including the, uh, the, the the big sharp correction that we saw yesterday. So I think, you know, ultimately, my, my view is that we need to have a sustainable long-term uh, margin financing uh, rules being established rather than being made it up as, as it goes along, which is what has been happening in, in the past few weeks. Certainly. Now, Alex Wong of Ample Capital, um, who is a regular guest host on this show on Monday, said that, you know, investors are feeling lost. He says, you know, you can't sell short confidently. You can't buy up very confidently either. So what do you do? Well, I think, again, I just need to reiterate, we need to focus on the long term structural themes that we see in China areas, such as the one, the one road concept the rise of consumerism, you know, healthcare, as well as the recovery of the real estate market. I think, you know, there are still specific themes in the Chinese market that we can invest in, but the investor needs to prepare for two things. One is to be patient, and second is to be able to ride through some of these extreme volatilities that we've seen in the past few weeks. Okay, so certainly, you know, when uh, you've got such volatility, some kind of uh, uh, government intervention might be expected, certainly in this day and age, perhaps arguably anywhere. But uh, China really, you know, is a situation where markets have gone from being markets to, you know, as David Strasheim said on Bloomberg last week, government operations. Uh, And still the CSRC spokesman has said that the government will continue to stabilize the market and prevent systemic risk. Is this a good idea? Um, I, think, I think the Chinese authority needs to recognize that its uh, control or power over where markets could be is much more limited now than they were five, ten years ago. Ultimately, the market's growing to a size where even intervention, either by direct investment or telling people not to sell, that's no longer uh, feasible to try to control or manipulate the level of the market. So I think the reality is the Chinese authority needs to recognize that market needs to work its way through uh, this turmoil rather than having too many interventions in there. You know, as you rightly said, we have seen other markets with uh, stabilization funds to come in from time to time. But I think the, uh, the way that it's been implemented in the past you know, three to six weeks have been really, uh, I think, making investors more nervous rather than less. But will they recognize this? You know, there seems to be this face-saving attitude out there. You know, the markets must be upheld because they are an indicator of, you know, the legitimacy of the Communist Party or whatever. There's so many different op- opinions out there. Uh, so, so will they actually relent or, or will they just continue to push through? Well, I think this is much more of a medium to 
long-term debate rather than what they're going to do over the next few days. Uh, ultimately, you're most likely to get a group of reformers who wants more liberalization. After all, it's not the foreigners who make this, uh, created this uh, volatility, it's local investors. But then you also get another group of uh, you know, politicians or, or policymakers who prefer to have a much more controlled environment. So I think it's going to be a debate, and it's, this debate is going to be as much about politics uh, as much as you know, finance and, and economics, but I, you know, I hopefully it will turn out that you know more liberalisation is on the way. And we've seen that with the Hong Kong Shanghai Connect, with the mutual recognition of funds, as well as the upcoming Shenzhen uh, Hong Kong Connect. So I, I, it's hard to see China backtracking on such progress of liberalisation. Tai, you know, there's this, still this idea out there that the CSRC uh, has has put out that, you know, some companies or individuals have been maliciously shorting stocks and that the CRC will mete out strict punishments if this is found to be true. What do you think? Can you explain this? Well, I think, uh, well, we did see, again, not just in China, but in other markets where short selling was temporarily uh, banned uh, for a while, where market was in extremely... You know, violent volatility. But I think, you know, again, uh, when, when I look at markets, you do need buyers as well as sellers uh, for it to be fully functional, to provide, to provide the right liquidity. And as a result, you know, I think while you want to uh, weed out insider trading or, or market manipulation, I think it's very difficult to establish whether a certain short seller is malicious or not. So um, I think rather than thinking that all these, uh, you know, evil speculators are trying to manipulate the market, as I said, you know, I think the market needs to have its, its uh, authorities to run itself uh, rather than having too much uh, hands-on intervention, you know, visible hand in the market. Okay, Ty, coming to oil, um, you know, we've certainly seen Brent crude oil now enter a bear market. What, if anything, could bring the price of oil back up? I mean, there's so much out there in the news that just points to uh, – perhaps, you know, further decline even in prices. Is there any specific data point or set of data points that investors are looking for uh, as a, or looking to, I should say, perhaps as a signal um, of oil prices rising once again? Well, I think, uh, first of all, we need a little bit more growth from a global economy, not just from China, but also from uh, developed economies as well as other emerging markets. Uh, secondly, I think, you know, uh, we also need to see more a demand response. You know, we have already seen the gasoline consumption, as the report you have earlier on, talked about gasoline consumption rising sharply. Uh, we've seen, you know, how U.S. consumers are changing the new car purchases from environmentally, you know, fuel-efficient cars back to the gas-guzzling SUVs. Um, I think that's a very important point. And also on the supply side, we've seen actually a very sharp cutback on investment on shale oil. Um, and, you know, I think that continues needs to be the case. And, of course, we have... Uh, Iranian oil coming through the pipeline, with Iraqi oil coming through the pipeline. So I think that will also be a factor to weigh on as well. But I think we need to have more, some of the more expensive producers to start reducing their investment. That will help to contain supply glut over the next few years. So obviously a range of different factors here. I mean, is the China situation not going to further hamper uh, the global recovery? I think it doesn't help in terms of risk sentiment. So you know, when you look at what happened in China yesterday and then what happened in Asia and subsequently uh, towards Europe and the States, I think we are going through a very, you know, sort of typical uh, risk of, you know, risk aversion type of uh, market sentiment, uh, even though the direct connection between the onshore Chinese market with the global equity market is probably not as strong as people think. But as you rightly said, I think, you know, the Chinese macroeconomy needs to stabilize, needs to improve. 
Uh, we do expect more rate cuts to come from China as well as reserve requirement reduction. All of these should help to stabilize, but we should not also forget that you know, the Chinese economy is going through a structural development where the, you know, the, the economic growth will naturally slow down as population growth slows down and the economy becomes richer. Uh, that's just the, the, so the nature of the economy. So, um, you know, we need to segregate between the structural slowdown of China, which is inevitable, and versus the cyclical slowdown of China, which I think some policy stimulus will help to stabilize things towards the end of this year. Certainly. So, Tai, you know, how are you advising your clients these days? I mean, what kind of assets should they be putting their money into? Well, for us, diversification has always been the principle of investment, so both equities and fixed income. But I would argue that uh, with, you know, the developed market starting to pick up with a bit more momentum, we do prefer uh, developed market equities, especially in markets like Europe as well as Japan. In emerging markets, uh, whether it's Asia or Latin America or Central Eastern Europe, we've got to be very selective. Uh, valuations are cheap in many of these markets, but at the same time, we've got to be mindful that with the Fed potentially raising interest rates later this year, with the possibility of a stronger U.S. dollar, we've got to be very careful in selecting the right markets in emerging markets. And I think Asia is still very much the, uh, the top of the crops from that perspective. All right, Tai, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Tai Wei is the Chief Market Strategist for Asia at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Well, time now to take a quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is down eight-tenth of a percent to 20,182. And Australia's ASX 200 index is also down 0.18% to 5,569. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.10 US dollars. One US dollar is trading at 123.29 yen and one pound sterling is worth 12 Hong Kong dollars and six cents and one US dollar and 55 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about trends in insurance. That's right after this. Extreme weather. Severe landslides. A chain of disasters. Don't think this kind of disaster only happens in movies. In recent years, extreme weather has caused severe landslides around the world. So please, listen out for landslip warnings. If disaster strikes, everyone could be in danger. We should cooperate with the government's emergency response plans. The time is now 8.21 a.m. and Friends Provident International has recently commissioned a survey to understand local and expats' preferences on insurance policies. Their managing director, James Tan, is in Hong Kong this week and he joins us now to give us an update. Good morning, James. Good morning, Rita. James, what are your top concerns from what you found in your survey? Uh, well, it's interesting. It, it's along the concept of critical illness and actually life cover. And what we find is that the respondent actually take out uh, more on life cover than critical illness. And what we're saying is that people uh, should not underestimate uh, critical illness protection needs uh, and ignore the risk of being diagnosed with a critical illness. 
Critical illness. Okay, so that that seems to be the the main uh, thread of concern here. When you look at locals and when you look at expats, what would you say are their top priorities, and do they differ between these two groups? Well, yeah, they actually do. Uh, if you look at some of the key financial priorities and in savings, investments, and protection uh, for the expats, they actually rank protection as the most important, uh, followed by savings and then investment. Well, for the locals, they rank actually savings uh, as more important, followed by protection uh, and, and then investments. Uh, what we find for the expat is that there's actually less uh, emphasis on critical illness. Um, a few expats have uh, critical illness cover in place, and this could be because expats, you know, they plan to leave, you know, for their home country ultimately and do not see themselves developing critical illness during their stay in Hong Kong. Uh, and so if they're diagnosed with uh, critical illness, they might lose the ability to work. Uh, so the critical illness protection gives them uh, some kind of payment, lump sum cash payment, uh, offering flexibility in managing their expenses during recovery or treatment period. Uh, so for FPI, we actually offer products which can actually make uh, claims uh, even when these expats uh, ultimately move to a different country or back to their home country. But surely if you contract a critical illness, you know, while you are on work assignment here, it doesn't mean you actually have to leave a job and go home or go elsewhere. I mean, uh, why wouldn't they actually uh, be more interested in taking out insurance to cover that while they're here so they can continue working? Well, I think most of the expats, when they move to a city like Hong Kong, which is, which is a great city, uh, they're more focused about maintaining and uh, keeping their jobs, uh, less focus on what's going to happen to them. And they feel that, hey, you know, I've got a company insurance uh, that could cover me. Uh, but fact of the matter is that, you know, they may not know uh, the amount of cutter cover that they need uh, when they're staying in Hong Kong. Is there any data at all to show that um, there is a difference in the rate that uh, people can, you know, contract critical illnesses, a difference between locals versus expats? Well, you know, they have to talk to their advisors. I think that's the best way to understand their specific needs. And the rates really depends on the type of cover they're looking for. Um, so it doesn't matter that people say, hey, you know, the more uh, coverage I have, the, the, the most number of diseases I can cover, uh, that's, uh, that's the best. But that's not actually the case. It really depends on uh, the type of needs uh, the specific individual actually has. And why are people actually looking for this cover? I mean, critical illness, is that not something that uh, is covered in health insurance packages from their employers? Uh, well, some do, not all of it, and obviously that depends on the type of coverage that the uh, the company is providing. Uh, but I think you know most of the um, experts, uh, specifically because they move around quite a bit uh, in different markets, different cities, uh, they have to find a solution that is uh, that is catering to their specific needs. All right. Well, thank you so much, James, for joining us this morning. That is James Tan, and he is a managing director for Asia for Friends. Provident International. Well, some analysts are saying that emerging markets might be the weak link when it comes to the recovery of the global economy. This morning, we're joined by Netexas's chief economist in the Asia Pacific, Alicia Garcia Herrero. Uh, good morning, Alicia. Good morning. Alicia, you had a report out addressing the vulnerability of the fragile five economies, which are, of course, Brazil, India, Indonesia, Turkey, and South Africa. And you had a particularly grim view on Brazil. Uh, so why is Brazil doing so badly? Well, um, in a way, Brazil was, of course, uh, the country that everybody wanted to be in in, in 2010, 2011. 
and since you know things started to go, uh, get really difficult and to a point that I think Brazil is today in a very difficult situation in the light of Fed um, monetary policy normalization. And the reason is really that basically Brazil went too late into hiking rates um, at a time where the economy was overheating, so trying to you know, enjoy as much that, that growth that was coming from capital inflows into the country from everybody who was interested in Brazil um, at the time. And then inflation showed up to levels that are, to, even today, with a recession of two percentage points of GDP. I mean, Alicia, how do growth. the other economies compare Turkey, South Africa, uh, for example, to Brazil? They're all doing better. The best in, in town is India. And these five countries, let me clarify that, were those that at the time of the Fed tantrum were doing worse in terms of current account deficit. So everybody was focusing on these five countries. So Brazil is still there, and I think it will suffer with the new tantrum that we may see very soon. And the rest are doing better, best being India, simply because the inflation has come down. They can afford some monetary policies in that Brazil is really not there, so it will have to hike further. And India being the best in town, I think, you know, we really need to thank a wonderful central banker, Mr. Rajan, who's managed to come, let inflation down from about 11% to mere 5% today. All right, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Alicia Garcia Herrero, and she is the chief economist at Natixis. Well, in company news, Swiss bank UBS has posted a 53% rise in second quarter profits to more than 1.2 billion US dollars from the same period a year ago. The earnings were far better than expected, led by the company's wealth management business and forced to release uh, results a day earlier than planned because of an erroneous Swiss media report. The bank said its key capital ratio improved in the second quarter. The ratio is a closely watched measure of of the bank's stability as Switzerland is likely to implement more stringent capital requirements for its big banks. Chris Wheeler is a banking analyst at Atlantic Equities. The problem, I think, for the Swiss bank still is there's just so much, I say so much, but some uncertainty around exactly where they have to be on leverage. They've done a great job, even on capital, and I think it, it is sort of they're being cautious, and I think rightly so, because they're not sure what's coming next. Now, time to take another quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down 1.18% to 20,110. Australia's ASX 200 index and Seoul's Kospi are both down 7 tenths of a percent each this morning to 5,540 and 2,023 respectively. Gold currently stands at $1,092.20 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $50. $53.09. The time is now almost 8.30 and this is Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast today. Uh, we'll have sunny periods and isolated showers. It'll be hot with a maximum temperature of around 32 degrees. Right now, uh, the temperature is 28 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 81%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. 
Tokyo stocks have opened down 0.79% after a big drop in the Chinese stock market sparked worries about global economic growth. Share prices fell sharply in Europe and the United States. The slump in the mainland markets was triggered by worries over the economy, with a new survey showing profits at China's industrial firms fell by a third of 1% last month. Andrew Batson is the head of China Research at Gavcold Draconomics in Beijing. Well, I don't think that the fall in the Chinese stock market necessarily means that the Chinese economy is in trouble. However, I do think that growth in China has been decelerating this year, and I do think there are some very serious problems in the Chinese economy. And now that the stock market is not doing so well, maybe people's attention is being drawn to these fundamental problems which haven't gone away. President Obama says Ethiopia needs to improve its record on human rights and good governance. He's on the first visit by a U.S. president to the country, as Radio Australia's Martin Cudahy reports. Ethiopia is an authoritarian country where the government controls every single seat in the national parliament. Barack Obama has held diplomatic talks with Ethiopia's Prime Minister Haile Mariam Desalegn. Mr. Obama told a media conference that the country needs to deliver more when it comes to basic rights. Political opponents and journalists are regularly locked up, but the Ethiopian leader has said his commitment to democracy is real. And not skin deep. Later today, Mr. Obama will address the African Union. Reform plans for football scandal hit governing body FIFA are in doubt after the front runner to head a new task force, Domenico Scala, signalled his reluctance to take the job. The BBC's Imogen Fawkes reports. Domenico Scala has been leading FIFA's reform process since the corruption scandal broke in May, and seemed a natural choice to chair the new task force. At least three of FIFA's six confederations have asked him to take the job, but the task force, which FIFA describes as neutral, has been criticised by anti-corruption campaigners 